This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com slash energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with George Tabosh, CEO of MIQ. MIQ is a nonprofit building a framework to help address fugitive gas emissions. This is being done through certification and monitoring. We have been talking about methane mitigation and some of the specific technologies behind the how recently on the podcast, but today we are going to dive into more of the why and a bit more on how to incentivize action in this space. So with that, let's get started. George, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to MIQ. Hi, Joe. It's uh, great to be on this show. I'm uh, happy to uh, explain a bit what MIQ is all about. So first of all, MIQ stands for Methane IQ, Methane Intelligence. So we're all about methane. Um, and principally, it's about methane in, in oil and gas. Um, MIQ started about four years ago um, with a bunch of people from amongst others, uh, Rocky Mountain Institute uh, in, um, in the US and Systemic on, uh, in the UK. Uh, we realized that uh, there was a there's not enough attention, let's say, to methane emissions in oil and gas, whilst in our view, and I'm sure we'll delve a bit more into this, it's actually a solvable problem, including in the, in the short to medium term. Um, and that's why we created MIQ, um, where we believe from a uh, the perspective of theory of change, as it is called, um, that we need to create the transparency around methane emissions and rely, amongst others, upon market forces to drive that change faster, most more efficient, um, and, and thus get to a, a better result earlier uh, around methane emissions. That is exciting, and and I like that that tee up of thinking about the transparency, the market forces, and and getting to incentivizing people to take action. Now. With that idea, I wanted to start first with a with a kind of a big question. And what some people may not know is you were actually retired before MIQ, and and you left retirement to join and, and be CEO. Um, the big question here is why why would you leave retirement for for this? Yeah, no, I think that's a. A very good question, and my, my girlfriend asked me often that question, although she's very enthusiastic about the, the venture we're doing here. Um, but the retirement, it, it was a relatively early retirement. I've been, been fortunate enough to to work for a long time in, in, in the city, trading uh, gas and oil and, and electricity. And I'm, I'm very passionate around uh, about winter surfing, ski touring, and, and mountain biking. Um, so we decided, okay, let's quit. We're good. Uh, we don't want... Uh, bigger houses or bigger cars. We're not interested in that. And so we decided to, to stop at a relatively uh, early age. And, and absolutely no regrets there. Uh, but four or five years in, uh, and I won't disclose my age on those ones clearly, but um, 
then a former colleague of mine, she called me up. Uh, we used to work together at, at Goldman Sachs uh, on the desk. She used to be my neighbor and we were doing all these deals and dealing with complicated markets and people and clients and the world moving around in the years of 2007 and eight. And she called me up and says, George, I've got this methane thing um, I want to discuss with you. My first reaction was methane, you mean gas? Because yeah. methane is the principal component of gas. And I, I plead here a bit of innocence, despite being a, a chemical engineer by training. Um, yeah, yeah, gas. I know gas. No, no, no. It's the leaks from the gas. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I remember uh, vaguely, and I'm sure I was not the only one, that in some cases, when you trade an LNG cargo, you actually do calculate in the, the leaks that are happening on the ship. Um, because economically, they make a difference when you transport a ship uh, across the ocean. Less common in pipeline transport, but in ships, you're used to do that. It's called boil-off gas. Um, but that's generally where it stopped 15 years ago, uh, 20 years ago. But now, the, the issue here is methane is much more potent than carbon dioxide. It is around 82 times more potent over a 20-year horizon. And so, if you add up all these leaks... And, and we'll delve a bit into where they are, but let's call them fugitive leaks uh, in, in, a, in a broader statement now, including flaring, for example. Um, the total quantity of leaking, and there's different numbers. IEA has a number around 1.5% of gas. Others use 2 to 3%. And already we're here, we're in, okay, what's the exact number? And, and four years ago, we, we were trying to do, as, as, you, as you tend to do in, in, in banks, like, what, what's the number? What's the order of magnitude? Yeah. And that's the first thing we did. And um, we came up with some numbers after delving into some scientific articles. and was all a bit vague. And we multiplied it. We then decided you have to multiply this by 82. Whilst at the time, a lot of people were thinking about a 100-year horizon of conversion. And we went very early on that. 100-year horizon. We're underwater by then. Why, why are we even talking about a 100-year horizon? Yeah. Um, so the 20-year one made much more sense. I'm like, wow, look at the size of this. This is gigantic. Um, to express it in number, it's, it's 7 billion ton of uh, CO2 equivalent. And we both went, whoa, okay. So I got interested. As in like, oh, this is a worthwhile cause. I want to, if I can help in solving this, and pushing the agenda towards solving this, then absolutely, I, I, need, I need to urgently come out of retirement. Um, and so I did. Uh, obviously, started slightly slowly and got dragged in there. And now, yeah, now, now we've got MIQ running with a much larger team and, and we're certifying a lot of companies over the last three, four years. But, but that's basically how it started. So I, I can't call myself retired anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I I like that that um, discussion and and kind of that that ethos behind it that the kind of the whole way you were enjoying enjoying life and you saw the value of not building bigger houses or faster cars and and whatnot and you were out there enjoying enjoying nature and the outdoors and, and doing what you liked and really what this now is giving, presenting that opportunity for others to be able to do that as well further down the line. Just wanted to, to add that it's almost like this is part of you, but the, that's not going to be the focus of this podcast. We can talk about that later. I know it's a, we want to talk about, the gas emissions and how we actually cut those. So thinking through the, the fugitive gas emissions, I think you've done a good job laying out how big that is already. What are some of those, some of those specific, uh, specific emissions that, that we can think about such as the boil off and flares and others that, that are commonplace that to help, put the audience in perspective and, mm -hmm. and then let's, so let's start with that. Yeah, there's a, there's in, in total, I think we've identified as a, close to 25 different sources where it can come from. 
Um, some of the major ones can be, for example, inefficient flaring. Uh, so people always assume that when you flare, then everything is burnt. But that's not the case. A X percent, and there's huge debates around what those percentages are on average, including, uh, is not being burnt. Um, and obviously, again, coming back to the 82 multiplier, uh, that then adds up. Yeah. Uh, the same goes for uh, tank operations. Tanks are needed in, in the systems. Uh, when they get loaded, unloaded, then there is emissions that are vented. And, and some of this is for operational reasons, but one can change slightly the operations or manage it better, which is slightly more complicated, but it can all be done. Um, then there is compressors. Uh, some compressors are pneumatic, so they actually use gas to, to drive uh, the compressors, uh, one can switch to electric compressors, for example, um, and then you don't have the leaks, or at least not in the same uh, matter. Uh, there's simply flanges and valves and, and all these kind of pieces of equipment, which number in the thousands wow. uh, across many of these installations. Uh, because you, you have to also imagine some of the installations, especially in the US, in, 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 the, in the remote area, it's like hundreds of well pads and wells that are spread out across vast territories um, with hundreds of kilometers of pipelines and interconnections. And so I often compare this a bit to, to water leaks, um, where if you have a water leak in, in your house, and I'm sure everybody on this podcast has had water leaks, and everybody went, how do I deal with that little tiny water leak that's driving me or my wife totally nuts? Uh, because it's not that easy to repair them, that yeah. single drip coming out of your tap. Yeah. Um, now, in the case of water, that doesn't uh, luckily give any or not, almost nothing influence on climate. Um, an inner wall can be stains, but it's annoying and it's tricky to uh, repair it. In some cases, you don't even know it because it might be leaking inside the wall and evaporate before you know it. So methane is a really tricky one because methane, basically, you can't smell it and you can't see it. And it's one of the smallest molecules around. And... But again, because of the multiplier effects, it's, it's really key. And so you've got these hundreds of leaks, potentially small leaks, but all adding up across uh, large facilities. And, th and this goes from upstream production uh, to then there's a, a in, in gas, there's a concept called boosting and gathering. And then you go into processing of the gas. You take up the, the non-desirable uh, components to make it pure and pure. Um, and then you've got long pipelines, which involves compressors again, um, storage tanks, and then LNG liquefaction in case you export, uh, which creates uh, more parts of the supply chain. And, and that's where methane, again, is quite unique compared to some other um, issues around climate change, because you keep leaking when you travel further along the supply chain. It's not that, okay, we've determined the methane emissions at the production facility, we're done here. No, no, depending on where you transport it and how you transport it, it will be more or less. Um, now, that in, in the world of, 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 of trading, that's called, in a way, is the equivalent of supply economics. If you transport over a longer distance, clearly there's a bit more cost involved depending on the type of transport you use. So I, I think it's totally logical what, what we're trying to do here as well is, is to kind of make that information transparent at those different nodes, at those assets. And so... One of our key tenets is you need to have the information, the data available at the asset level or facility level. That's where everything takes place in the real world, not in the world of let's write another beautiful report about uh, what, what emissions are uh, on a yearly basis. In the real decision world where the operators, the engineers are working, where the traders are working, where the commercial decisions are being made, it's basically at the asset levels. Um, yeah. So that's where you need to have the, the information. And, and that's kind of what we've created. Uh, okay. That so you say you've created that at the asset level. Let's dive into that a little bit more and and think can you explain really what does that mean and is that is that like a new technology is that something something that is still in early stage development or or Really, how do we actually gather that data, quantify that data, and provide it in a usable way? So, um, basically, the the working at asset level uh, has been used by other uh, 
entities. For example, the EPA reporting in the United States is at the NASA level as well. Um, but then there are other uh, reporting schemes of international institutions where everything gets reported at a company level only. And obviously, a company frequently operates more than one asset and frequently operates even internationally. Um, but that's not how commercial flows take place. That's not how transport of gas uh, takes place. It takes place between assets. You produce, for example, I'm just going to use one of the uh, companies that uh, we are uh, certifying, their, one of their assets, uh, EQT, based in the Appalachian. So what they produce in the Appalachian, that asset, that facility of theirs is being certified. So if they sell their gas to a pipeline and then potentially from there to a utility or to an LNG liquefaction uh, plant, that comes from that facility. At the end of that facility, there will be a sales meter, it's called, which measures how much gas has been produced there. And what the MIQ methodology and technology does, it determines at that asset what the methane emissions are. Hmm. And with the use of a lot of methane technology. So that can involve flyovers, that can involve uh, drones, that can involve uh, laser-based uh, tower systems, handhold uh, OGI cameras. Um, many different technologies are often required. But what we determine is the methane emissions as they take place at that asset. We then also know the, um, obviously the, 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 the productions. And then the trick here now comes in the fact that we then provides the facility with certificates. Certificates for, there's a certificate they get for each MMBTU, for each unit of gas produced, they get a single certificate in a digital registry. And on that certificate, it states what the emissions were of that specific unit of energy, MMBTU. And so if a buyer buys uh, a million units, a million MMBTU, um, then they will get from the operator a million certificates delivered with that gas. And that will state on each of them the specific methane emissions of uh, that facility. And so now the buyer, they now know what the methane emissions were of the gas they've mm -hmm. bought. Because obviously the buyer can't measure it. It's gone. <laughs> it's too late. By the time they take delivery of that gas, oops, uh, there's no more methodology. Yeah. So we do this with certificates that travel along uh, with the gas. Now they travel along clearly virtually, uh, they're not inside the gas pipeline. Uh, we have thought that through whether we could kind of trace the gas and we went a bit funky there. Didn't lead anywhere clearly, um, but we tried it out. Could we kind of color it? No, you can't. Um, so we didn't end up there and we've done this with uh, the digital certificates. Um, okay. Some people would call it uh, tags, tokens, yeah. whatever. It's different names for a similar concept. Now, when you when you talk about that, so you've got the asset level. So once you produce it and basically at that flange where it is entering the pipeline, you say, okay, from here to here, it had X number of emissions. Mm -hmm. Is there another component then for the pipeline itself? So say you are buying it in Appalachia, but you're selling it to New York going from yeah. West Virginia to New York, that travel corridor, I would think has to be a separate calculation and a separate person who is responsible for those emissions. That, no, and I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, it's what we call the supply chain emissions. And so in the example so far, I've only spoken about upstream production, basically. But in total, there are we've identified seven different segments in the supply chain. Um, and onshore in the US, you would have upstream production. Then you have boosting and gathering. It's often different companies that operate that as well. Um, and into boosting and gathering, you might have different production facilities entering into one boosting and gathering uh, facility. And then you've got processing um, of, of the gas. And then you've got pipelines. So that's four in total. After the pipeline, normally they enter into city gates, it's called, uh, or, or consumption areas. We, we don't look at that one. We think it's one, the smaller, um, smaller part of the emissions, and two, often those uh, types of grids are regulated as well. And so you're in different kinds of economics. It's not necessarily individual companies mm -hmm. transacting between themselves. So we stop at, at the gates, actually. 
Um, now, if you go abroad and put it on an LNG liquefaction plant, for example, in, in Louisiana and Texas, there's several plants there. Um, then you have the LNG liquefaction, where, again, that's a separate segment. You don't have the shipping of it. That's another separate segment. And then on the other side of the ocean, you now have what's called a regas terminal, where you convert the liquefied gas back into uh, normal gas. Um, so that's a total of seven. And then actually we have a specific standard as well for uh, offshore, because offshore is a very different way of looking at it. So what we've done at MIQ, we've developed different technology, different norms for each of those eight segments. Um, and we've started with upstream, uh, but since last year we've released all the other ones. So now it's like a it's like a whole suite of uh, products, if you want to, of standards. And what we're looking to do this year is to roll that out this year, next year, to roll that out across the different parts of the supply chain. So that effectively, you're right, if a utility wants to buy that Appalachian gas and wants to count the pipeline in there as well, then of course you need to have the proper data for the pipeline and all the boosting and gathering. Um, and so over time, we hope that that picture gets more complete and more complete. Uh, but it will, it will take time as well um, to, to complete that. Um, but anything better data at this moment, let, let's say again, asset specific data is like a vast improvement of what currently is being used. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. So earlier, I just want to touch back on this. You said approximately, approximately equivalent to 7 billion tons of CO2 is what the current methane emissions are. How, when we talk about the entire supply chain, focusing first on upstream and the asset level emissions, fugitive gas emissions, what percentage of that, of that 7 billion equivalent is the upstream component? Oh, that's actually quite a tough question because there's very, it's very sparse data on that. And I should know it roughly what we have for the United States, but it's not necessarily applicable on a, on a global basis. Okay. Uh, I need to pass on this one because I don't want to chuck out a percentage <laughs> there and be next to it. It's it's a large percentage, so it's not a single digit one, uh, but it doesn't get to fifty percent either. Okay. Uh, and I don't have the, the the exact percentage at the top of my mind here. Yeah. Um, so I but guess clearly upstream is a is a big part. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess where where I'm trying to get at with that is when we when we think about about this tackling the methane emissions and trying to go step by step to me the first part would probably be that upstream and that and that's what you have rolled out as that first component to the entire supply chain so really the 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 question is how how i guess we don't know how much of a component that will have but how long do you think just tackling that upstream component is going to take understanding the emissions and yep. then empowering the the producers to solve those emissions yeah so our estimate is and, and we see this accelerating away uh, at the moment already mm -hmm. um when we started looking into this about as i said three four years ago first of all we thought it was interesting that the way to solve this is, again, it's existing technology. So to mm -hmm. replace the pneumatic valves with electric valves, that's existing technology. Nothing needs to be invented. To determine the methane emissions, uh, the drones and the flyovers, I mean, there's huge evolution in, in that sector, by the way, that's taking place. But it is existing technology being massively improved. There's no massive invention happening here. It's not like, I don't know, hydrogen in planes. That's still a bit of a... <laughs> A, a tough yeah. one. Uh, where, where are we going with that one? Um, nuclear fusion, if you want to. So this is one where there's existing technology. We work now with several dozen uh, technology providers in the US, for example. Um, so again, existing technology, so it can be done now. And, and so we believe that with that existing technology, with the possibility for scaling of all of this, and it's one of the reasons why we've made MIQ technology agnostic because we think several technologies can sometimes lead to the right results. It's not like there's, there's one amazing one that, that does it all. It doesn't work like that. Um, and also choosing too early a specific technology would potentially preclude other ones 
from mm. developing. So uh, we think that that is a dangerous road to take. The markets do work here. Um, is that and and we also saw statements from some of the larger companies um, with targets um, in OGCI, for example, they had zero point two percent targets. Later on, that moved to near zero. Recently, we've seen similar um, noises coming out of COP, for example. And we were one of the first ones who were pushing for, this has to be solved by 2030. It's like, I don't want to talk about this 2050 horizon. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm semi-dead by then. Uh, And a CEO of the average company has changed seven times over. It's like, which company operates on a what are we today? 2023. Which which company operates on a 27-year horizon or strategy plan? Nobody. There is nobody who operates on those kind of time horizons. Um, and so you, you need to have a, a much more kind of rallying cry almost between what's achievable, which is maybe ambitious, but it's, it's absolutely achievable. And so we think that 2030 is for us when we can actually sort this all out. Um, when you add in all, and we can go into scenario planning, and I know there's lots of other institutions that will then write another 100-pager of the different scenarios, how we get here. But I'm just outlining a couple of the kind of underlying parts, and this can be done. Again, this can be a back-of-the-envelope calculation of this can be done by 2030. We can then justify it, and call me a cynic here, we can then justify it with a 100-page report, but ultimately, again, the existing technologies, I can I see that the, the oil companies are starting to get on board with this as well. And we saw that a couple of years ago with the leading companies. Um, we believe seven or eight years to do this. And that includes now further than the upstream. That includes all the rest of it. Uh, and we're seeing now, two years later, also some of the legislation going into that direction, aiming for those types of horizons. Um and whether it's on the US side or on, on the EU side. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to that uh, 2030 number uh, that I uh, chucked out somewhere in the panel about two or three years ago. And mm. um, I think everybody's been picking that up now, and, and, and that's great. And actually, I need to go on retirement again, definitely before 2030. So <laughs> uh, there's, there's a personal driver here as well. <laughs> that sounds, sounds great. So let's assume... The the optimistic scenario is the realistic scenario. We get 2030 done, remove all fugitive gas emissions. How does how does that actually impact things like the global warming, the climate change, and and that methane contribution to all of that? What are we actually removing? Yeah. So a couple of ways of expressing this. Um, in numbers expressed, it's about 5 billion uh, plus uh, of CO2. Out of the 7 billion, I think we can remove yep. 5 plus billion. So we're not saying 100%. It might be too difficult to do the 100% okay. um, because of the small leaks everywhere and they all add up. Uh, so I want to be realistic here as well. And I don't know, often that that's not a popular statement for uh, some stakeholders. No, you must go to zero. I was like, it's really tough to do zero. So... Well, yeah, we can pr- pretend that we should go to zero, but I pr- I'm a pragmatist, I'm a realist, so it's going to be near zero, and then we can have a debate around what exactly is near zero, but to go to fully, absolute zero methane emissions is going to be very tough um, and almost too onerous for it to be worth it. Uh, we have to go much lower than where we are currently, uh, but an absolute zero is almost uh, is, 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 is a bit pointless. Um, so I think... Where we can compare it with is the effect of this is by 2030, give or take eight times the effect of the electric vehicles on the road by then. Wow. So, and that's assuming a 30 or 35% market share of EVs by 2030. Mm. So that in 2030, globally, 30, 35% of EVs, sorry, 30 or 35% of cars being sold are EVs which is still needs some growth from here. And we need some serious supply chains and new factories being built to have that amount of EVs. I can't remember the latest number. I think it's it's probably a third of that at the moment. I mean, there's a massive growth. Don't get me wrong. It's great. Um, but the effect of it is in 2030, still only about an eighth 
of what I think we can achieve with methane emissions. Wow. Um, so it's gigantic. Um, and I, I, just to be clear here, I'm not saying we should not do EVs. I'm not saying we should not aim or try hydrogen in planes. The answer on all these things is all of the above. Yeah. We must try them all. And, and often I'm seeing in, in the in the whole sustainability debate, it, it can be quite polarizing, unfortunately. Um, almost uh, political and everybody having their, their favorite technology. Um, obviously, um, lots of people either trying to sell their technology or just believing in that particular one. Mm-hmm. But that's not how we're going to solve climate change. You need to try so many at the same time because the challenge is just gigantic. And so you need to do all of them and all of them at scale. The, the, the scale of transforming our, our, the gigantic energy we are consuming at the moment on a global basis. And that's before counting that there might be a, another couple of billion people that might want to have energy uh, over the next decades as well. Um we are going to need a lot of different uh, approaches. It's not one or the other. Um, yeah. And I think that, that that's actually one of the key ones. And so for us, that's why methane is one of them that needs to be. But methane is unique because we can do it this decade. Here and now, no new technology is required. Go yeah. and do it. Yeah. Yeah, that that's significant when we talk about the opportunity there. And, and I completely agree with it is in all of the above solution and everything has its place, including including existing infrastructure, LNG infrastructure and 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 EVs and and hydrogen and planes. All of them have a role to play in the future of energy. But it there isn't going to be a silver bullet. There's not that one solution that can solve and actually eloquently deliver all of the power we need. So yeah. I I agree. And I think that's exciting and important to see the impact and, and how and where we should be focusing and, and dispersing all of our efforts. Now, the I think it's, so we solved this by 2030 and right now from from my perspective MIQ is focused on the reducing methane emissions in the gas supply chain. What happens once we solve that? Specifically for MIQ, what after that you're going to retire What's going to be next for for MIQ? Where do you see the next big step to to really keep working? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see actually a, a couple of. I mean, with the the technology and the idea, we the, the framework we've come up with, and actually uh, we do need to talk about one aspect which I haven't even addressed. Actually, is another key tenet of the way um, we are uh, executing the framework is a what's called a third party audit. And so the auditor is actually not MIQ. We create a certification standard. We issue what's called the certificates, as I described earlier, but we don't execute the audit. For that, we have approved, accredited, it's called, uh, by now about a a dozen uh, firms that will conduct the audits. And that includes site visits, by the way. And that's key because methane is such a a difficult subject. They they go on the sites and they check it out and they see how it all works and reality and and how um, the handheld cameras are being used or what's happening at the tank unloading and and, and so on. And so they check it out in the fields. And that third-party audit is key. Um, And it's a bit like with financial accounts is – you wouldn't necessarily believe the management accounts clearly. You want to have an independently audited account. And so it comes in the auditor. Now, the auditor uses a concept called a financial standard, for example, US GAAP or IFRS. And MIQ is, is, is kind of similar. We've developed that, that standard so that the auditor can come and do this. But again, it's, it's key that that auditor comes in. And once you go to the level of saying, okay, what we need actually is asset data audited. Those two tenets are are, are the principal ones. 
then you can apply the same principle in oil streams. You can apply a similar system for, although they're slightly easier, for CO2. And you can apply it potentially in a couple of adjacent sectors. But what you ultimately will have is the base data of the emissions as they are being used in the classical fuels uh, system. So that the buyer or the consumer rather of the fuel, gas or oil, and potentially you know it can also go to blue ammonia, for example, kind of will, will lead to that, has that data. And where we, on the next step, where we want to take it, is that that allows the buyers to choose to compete, basically, the gas between slightly better gas and even better gas and compare it with worse gas from an emissions perspective. And all these emissions have happened upstream from where the buyer took delivery of the gas or the oil. And, and so where we see this going is, is to create a world where the buyers can effectively make that choice based on an asset level audited data. So it's credible. They make the choice. I'm buying the cleaner gas or the cleanest gas, whatever it is. And they basically compete and they compete not just on price and delivery terms. That's classic. That's already taking place clearly. But they also start to compete. Emissions uh, are then being part of it. And so it's what I call we want to commoditize emissions data. But to do that, you have to start from that credible data, which needs to be asset level and audited. That is the, is the tenet of the starting point. And then you can kind of combine it like Lego blocks um, along the supply chain or including in oil. Um, and then obviously then, then the emissions are, are um, where we ultimately, I hope we end up is whilst we are doing the transformation, that uh, ultimately the, the emissions in the meantime and much faster of what's being either leaked or consumed inside the oil and gas industry is actually being addressed. Yeah. Um, and that's a large number. And, and that's it's in technical terms, it's called scope one emissions. Um, and scope one emissions, I'm, I'm very clear on that. That is the responsibility of the oil and gas companies. They, they can't deny that. That's their responsibility. Yeah. Um, one can have debates about who is responsible for the consumption of the oil and gas. And that's a very complicated debate, probably for another podcast. But the, um, the actual scope one emissions of production and transport, uh -uh, that's the oil and gas industry. Mm. It's their responsibility. Yeah. And I... I I like the the process there, and as you were as you were talking, really giving the the end buyers the information and the the power essentially to choose mm -hmm. what they want based on on this additional layer of of emissions data. To me, it it sounds it sounds like almost a better way to go about something like. The carbon credits, or or really, it it is a it's certifying the 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 level of emissions for the gas is what you're doing, and to me now the market can say okay since this one is in fact better we want to buy this one as opposed to going out and buying credits or or something, which is a yeah. it's an incentive to 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 drive if you want to be more environmentally friendly now we can do it because we have the information to start purchasing those products. And, and here is an interesting one on that. So, so we also say like, you first need to avoid emissions. Mm -hmm. And to avoid the emissions, you first need to know what the emissions are, and then you buy the lowest emissions one. And then potentially as a third step, you do carbon offsets. Yeah. But don't do carbon offsets of either an unknown amount or just not try to evade first. Yeah. You must, it's, it's like an absolute, non-debatable first step you first debate the methane emissions yeah um and to put it in context um so we we've also done some studies on, on the average upstream emissions in in the us um and a big part of that is obviously the, the classical epa numbers but then we've enhanced that um with a, a variety of other parties and, and, and a lot of statistical analysis uh with basically uh, data from uh, monitors, mainly with, with Kairos um, and carbon mappers data, about 400,000 data points. Um, and the average emissions upstream in the US is about 1.0% average. Okay, and the, the word average here is key 
because the outliers are there. Um, and we have now certified around 20% of that gas uh, in the US, uh, of, of the total US gas production has been certified by, by MIQ. And that, all that gas is, uh, in our parlance, A, B, or C grades. And C grades is less than 0.2%. Uh, and the average is lower because there are lots of people with A's and B's uh, certificates. Um, and so if I take, for example, uh, a company that has been certified by us uh, with A-grade certificates, that's less than 0.05%. That has to be compared with the average in the US of 1.0%. So it's 95% reduction wow. if you buy that A graded. If you buy the C grade, then it's still 80% reduction by yeah. buying that specific gas. Now, obviously, if you run the stats, it means there is still quite a lot of people who are way beyond the 1.0%. And, and, and that's partially what we're trying to do here with MIQ. We've got leading companies that are now starting to certify because they manage it properly and, and so on. And, uh, we are now certifying, so it's not the companies telling them, it's it's the auditors plus us who are now saying this. Um, and what we want is the buyers to start buying more of that gas, because transactions are already taking place, actually. Um, but they have an opportunity to buy uh, lower methane gas, and thus drag in all the other ones as well, the ones where this is not happening yet, so that... Uh, over time, everybody has to address their methane emissions. I, I don't think there's any excuse not to do it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, I see what you're saying there. And and it it's I think it's good being a first mover and having A-grade gas, that very low component, and being able to sell that to the market and, and being a, a leader in all sense of the word there. And yeah. it getting the rest of the group, whether excitedly following or begrudgingly following, yep. it would be following in the right direction. And I think that's Basically. exciting. Yeah. And it's not only large companies, publicly quoted companies, there's also smaller companies, also privately owned companies. So last week we announced, for example, Penn Energy and that's a privately mm -hmm. owned company. So it, it, it spends the, the, the spectrum there. There's BP in there. Is it Exxon in there? Repsol, uh, Northeast Energy. So it, it's smaller, medium sized. There's large US uh, operators such as EQT and Chesapeake, for example. So so it's quite a wide range, actually, of, of, of companies that are, are starting to move. Um and yeah, we, we totally encourage that, that, that leadership and, and, and more and more are starting to follow. Um, but also, I, as I always say, it's for, for, for the engineers and uh, for the operators in the fields. It's not that people don't want to solve this. It, it just has to be prioritized. And again, the technologies are there. Um, and so this can be solved. Um, and, and we want to make it into BAU, business as usual, rather than something... That, that's where I want to take this. Just like, I don't know, 20, whatever it was exactly, maybe longer, 20, 30, 40 years ago, was a whole debate around whether you had to wear hard hats on whatever sides. Nobody asked that question anymore. You do. Yeah. And you wear safety goggles. You just do. And I don't know when that debate took place. Uh, I wasn't there. Um, but that must have been a long debate as well. Nobody questions that today. Yeah. And I think for me, it's the same on methane. You just deal with methane because... That's what you do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that is a, a good stopping point. With that, I want to transition into my final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. That first one okay. being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Ooh. <laughs> okay. Favorite writer or favorite book? Uh, if you have a specific book, that's good. If you just have a writer, that is also good. Okay. My, my, my favorite writer is probably Ian M. Banks. He's a sci-fi writer, uh, a Brit. Um, but it also, I mean, it, it, it's pretty, it's maybe a bit niche. It hasn't been made into movies yet. <laughs> but it's it's quite uh, what I call space opera style, uh, far ahead in time uh, science fiction, uh, along the lines of uh, what we are seeing with Foundation, for example, uh, by Asimov. Um, but it also makes me think about, and which is probably more pertinent to to the program, 
made me think about another writer who also does uh, a lot of sci-fi, and that's uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, um, who's an American writer. And he, he writes sci-fi in a, in a different way, much more closer. Um, and one of his books uh, that I read a couple of years ago, it's called New York 2140. Um, and it starts on the premise, which, which is going to sound slightly uh, a bit dark, but it starts on the premise that actually in the year 2140, New York is several meters underwater. However, New York is adapted. And New York has now got the, the bottom, whatever levels of the skyscrapers are now waterways. And so it's turned into some kind of a Venice. Um, and But what, what the book does, it kind of, puts in a, in, a, in a kind of a narrative the what could happen by making it real, by not kind of another 100-page report around what might happen, but by actually creating characters that are now living in such a world, yeah. but also how those characters are actually dealing with it. And I can't remember exactly the characters. There might be a teacher in there and a detective. I can't remember the exact characters. That's quite a couple of years ago. Um, but it makes it quite real. But also what, what, what is interesting is, is how humanity actually does adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm not hoping we have to get to that level. Let's be clear here. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing MIQ. Um, but, yeah, it gives a couple of different messages from that perspective. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's just a good book. So uh, it, it kind of opens your mind and, and forces you to think it through in a non-classical, let me read the next report written by, I don't know, some institution or economist, yeah. which tends to get a bit boring after a while. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that, one of my books. That's a very good recommendation. One question on it. Would you say it is a, an, an optimistic book or pessimistic book? <laughs> I think it is a... It's probably a realistic book. Uh, no, it's, I don't know. It's got a bit of both in it, actually. Um, because it, it, it does depict that we might be a bit late to deal with this all. Um, because that's kind of where it starts. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's optimistic in the sense that human beings can adapt. Yeah. Um, so maybe from that perspective, it, it's slightly optimistic. Um so somewhere in the middle, I would say. Hedging okay. my bets here now, I know. Okay. Very interesting. It sounds it sounds fascinating. And I am gonna I'm gonna jump on Amazon right after this and try and find it. Now, the next question, and this one very pertinent to what you were saying, because the question is how do we get to net zero as a society? Now, and I, I wanna remind you what you said earlier with methane emissions, it is it is very difficult to get to true zero with methane emissions. So I think net zero is a very important topic and a very important thing to think about. So how are we going to get there? We get to the 80% for methane emissions. How do we get the rest of it? How do we compensate for it? Yeah, I think that, that's a very good point. I think one of the things that will probably happen, and, and gas is probably going to be the last one in all the fossil fuels, that uh, it's not for nothing this is called an energy transition. And so transition means we don't abolish it tomorrow, as in the fossil fuels. So this is taking time. And there's a good logic for it. I think otherwise we'd destroy society today if we abolish today. Um, and these things are going to take time. Um and so gas is the cleanest, if the methane emissions are low, by the way, uh, amongst all these fuels. And it's probably going to be around for, for the longer, comparatively to definitely coal, I hope, um, and probably oil. Um, now, over time, the volumes of all the fossil fuels are going to go down as well. So when I signed the 7 billion and we get rid of 5 billion, that's on the assumption of that's on a number run on today's consumption. So if that consumption goes down, then obviously the numbers uh, do go down ultimately as well. Yeah. Um, but secondly, 
I think to get to net, net zero, it comes back a bit to what I said earlier. We, we To do this transformation, I think broadly speaking, we are going to need several large technologies. And I always come back to we... we we should stop wasting time on, on niche technologies or niche uh, kind of applications. Um, because, for example, I just mentioned hydrogen in planes. And although I'm an engineer, I think that's super exciting. Don't get me wrong here. But airplanes, all the airlines are around two and a bit percent of emissions, all of them. So yes, we must address airline emissions, but still it's only 2%. On-road car transport is, is way more than that, for example. So how much impact is hydrogen in planes going to have over the next 20, 30, 40 years? First of all, we need to deliver this technology. Then we need to approve the safety standards for this. Then we need to scale it all up. And then ultimately what we're going to do is solve 2% if that all works. The real person in me tells me that it's probably more than 20 years ahead mm. by the time we've replaced all our planes and it's probably multiples of 20s of years. So if you do the simple count on what's out there, I think there, there's probably a handful of, of areas that are really going to create impact. And the rest sits at the fringes. Um, so clearly solar power is in there. Windmills are in there as well. Uh, battery technology in a very large uh, definition now is, is going to need to improve and better and all that. Um, I think, I hope that in some form or shape, uh, nuclear energy does its, its uh, version two, uh, whether it's through SMRs or things like that. Uh, I don't think the, the industry itself has necessarily helped itself over the, over the decades in, in making its case. Um, but we, we might be needing uh, some of that as well. Uh, and then I think there is also a, um, a case potentially for items like blue ammonia or hydrogen or the green versions or, or that, that whole space. Um, and... What you can see is I'm, I'm now showing the new energies rather than talking about the current ones. And I think that's why a lot of the debates go wrong. It's like abolish this or abolish gas, abolish oil, abolish coal. But the way to address that is by creating the other ones, scaling the other ones. Yeah. That needs to happen. You, you need to, to it's, it's, you can, depending on your viewpoint, it's addressing the demand rather than the supply. Um, that needs to happen. And so I think that's where the bigger... Uh, bang for buck is going to come from. Um, and will carbon offsets play a role? Probably. Um, direct air capture, and the jury is out whether that can be scaled enough. Uh, potentially, I hope it can. That be one of the magical solutions, but if you look at current prices and current scaling, we're not even close. Um, so I wouldn't bet the farm on that. That's like the hydrogen in planes. I wouldn't bet the farm on that. Um, so I look at it very much like a stacking model is like, okay, what gives, what is realistic and what can give double digit percentages of change versus what gives definitely single digits of change. Um, but yeah. the noise is out there in sustainability lands and often the ones that give 0.1% of change are making a lot of noise. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, I think that's sometimes unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it's an interesting way to look at it and and things that that I've talked with people before, either on the podcast or or off of it and really thinking through their all of these solutions are great, they're exciting and it would be it would be fun to to say I am in one of those planes flying that is purely on green hydrogen. But as you point out, the the impact of that is on a different scale than, say, methane emissions, and hmm. and it is a it's or really yeah, and it's understanding and prioritizing what needs to be done now so that we have a twenty year timeline to actually solve those really super niche, hard to abate areas. Yeah. And that's something that 
if we try and solve all of the really cool, exciting ones first and then come back and say, oh, we've only effectively changed 10% of emissions. Well, now we're now we've got some explaining to do. Exactly. And uh, for example, let's take nuclear fusion. I remember, uh, and uh, because I'm a proper geek, uh, when I was a teenager, I read up quite a lot about that. And I think as this technology is super fascinating. Yeah. Guess what? We're still not there, and it's still 20 years forward, kind yeah. of. Um, I'd love for it to work, but we haven't figured it out yet. So yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm also a realist first, um, and, and you need to. It's the 80/20 rule, the 90/10 rule. Call it what you yeah. want to do, what you want to. Um, but we need to to go for those those big ticket items. Uh, they need to be. It's all about impact. It's all about scaling, rather than about how exciting the the technology is. And as it, it's sometimes it's a bit more boring, uh, I think, in a way. And that's why it sometimes, unfortunately, gets uh, less attention. Um, but ultimately, that that's how we're going to solve a lot of, of climate change. I think there's one that's even more boring that I didn't mention out of the what was it probably a handful um, is um, energy um, efficiency, whether it's through insulations or more efficient cars or all of the above or uh, improving the processes. It's boring, isn't it? Yeah. But <laughs> it's quite easy to get ten or twenty percent down with that. Yeah. Um, if you put your mind, if the, if the engineers and the managers and everybody puts their minds to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, way Europe got forced into it with the Ukrainian invasion. We all turned the thermostat down a bit. Yeah. Um, it worked. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, a perfect example that everybody can relate to. They can think about when was the last time you took somebody up into your attic to show them how cool your insulation was that's saving you <laughs> 10 or 20% on your energy yep. bill versus walking outside and saying, hey, look at my Tesla. Do you want to go zero to 60? Because that's really fun. (laughs) It's a- Totally. Yeah, yeah. Well, with that, the last question, now you actually get to ask me a question. Oh, why are you doing the podcast? That, yeah, why am I doing it? It is because talking about all of these things for me is fascinating. It gives me that- that avenue to geek out and not have to go and read all of the books and just get to go and talk to the experts like yourself and, and experts across the entire energy transition space. When, when my day to day is purely focused on subsurface and geothermal and, and rocks, instead I get to spend times like now talking about things like methane mitigation and, and abatement and the, the back end and front end softwares and technologies that that enable that. So for me, it is a avenue to to geek out a little bit and continue to grow and understand the entire landscape while also giving opportunities to people like MIQ to get their solution out there because I I think the hardest part is getting broad broad reach and broad understanding of solutions and there are so many out there that i think are are so exciting but they don't have an avenue to to talk about it so that is partially what i want to do here is make sure everybody knows as many solutions as possible so that whichever one fits their there's their challenge they can find it and start implementing it that's well, why i'm that's, here uh, <laughs> sounds like we've been talking amongst geeks then so that's, that's uh... <laughs> yeah so i hope everybody is enjoying it well george thank you so much for joining me today on the show before we sign off is there anything else you'd like to say um no it's been, it's been a pleasure to be on the on the podcast uh, very much enjoyed it uh, talking amongst geeks, uh, but but jokes aside, um, I think we we both seem to be aiming to to learn more about this space and, and kind of present solutions uh, to to the audience on how how to do how, how to deal with climate change and, and and I think people can do this on a personal basis in in their own company and get going with it and I think that's 
my, my background is actually also the, the oil and gas industry. Um, I worked for, for almost 10 years for, for BP, the oil company, in an earlier part of my career. And I know it's full of clever people, that whole industry. Uh, but what we want them to do is to, to pick this up at their uh, jobs and, and help to transform into a uh, cleaner planet faster and, and more efficiently. So, yeah, that, that's the call out, I guess, to to all the people in the audience is uh, let's get going on, on methane and, and give us a call. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a great call out, great way to end it. So thank you again, George. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you would like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting our website. Finally, if you're into stickers, I have a way for you to get some from us. Go to my show notes, find that one-question survey link, click it, fill it out, and we'll send you some stickers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email is joe.batir at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.